Hello, friend and colleague. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music on the podcast today, episode 147. I have two fabulous guests and conversations. My first popular music voice specialist and creativity coach, Jessica Baldwin, is helping all of us, yes, teachers included, to find their authentic artistic voice. And my good friend and colleague Dana Lentini returns to the podcast and we're talking about the opportunities within small group classes, artistic journeys, and business opportunities right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Hello, thank you, and welcome to the Full Voice Podcast. My friend, my colleague, I hope you are keeping well. And my apologies, um, I, I am a little... I am a little stuffed up. I have a bit of a of a sinus thing going on. No, it's not COVID. And yes, my whole family had to be tested. And uh, I, uh, I'm still recovering from that nasal swab. Oh my goodness, that was uh, that was something. But uh, we got our results. Everything's good. We're just dealing with a little bit of a cold. You know, I long for the day <laughs> when a cold is just a cold, and you don't have to to put everything on hold and find out, uh, and go get tested and, and everything. And, uh, but I want to, uh, I want to thank all the healthcare workers out there who are, uh, still on the front lines, helping everybody and, uh, who, um, took care of us. And, uh, I, um, I'm always, uh, I'm always think thinking and grateful for those people that are doing so much now for all of us to keep us all healthy. Um, I have a fabulous, fabulous show for you today. I have two fantastic conversations and, um, I'm so excited to, uh, to share both of them. Um, the first one is with, uh, Jessica Baldwin. Now, Jessica is a popular music voice specialist, a creativity coach, and an indie soul singer songwriter. I love that. Now, Jessica uh, has shared with me after completing her master's in classical voice pedagogy and performance, she started on her own personal journey into her own artistry after a teacher had introduced her to the artist's way. And she uh took the deep dive into everything she could find about contemporary commercial music vocal pedagogy. Now, Jessica attended the first CCM Institute program in 2009 and then was eventually appointed to the faculty to the Institute in 2016. That's how much she loves this. And I love what she says here. I'm taking this from her bio. While she still loves nerding out on vocal pedagogy and helping singers create the sounds they want, her true passion is in helping the singer artist connect to the why behind their sounds, songs, and style, walking alongside them as they find their own path to artistic 
authenticity. I love that. Now, my friends who are listening, um, for those of you who are voice teachers, this really resonated her. This conversation really struck a chord with me because um, the more I dove into teaching, the more I kind of lost my artistic uh, way, I think. And I, and I kind of set that aside and was working more on my pedagogy to help uh, to help my students and to understand the voice. But we're talking today about being true to one's artistic self. And I think before we can help others, it's a wonderful reflection on our own journeys and where we are. So I am excited to share this conversation with Jessica. And Jessica is going to be popping into our podcast throughout the year because there's just so much to this. And I think it's such a powerful um uh, reflection on oneself, and I think can really unlock some things for teachers. So, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast, Jessica Baldwin. How are you? I'm doing so well. Thank you for asking, and thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be a part of your podcast. Oh, Jessica, thank you. I'm I'm very excited to speak with you, and actually. We tried to get you on to the last season's podcast, but the timing just didn't work. So Jessica, you run these amazing workshops. You are really um, serving our industry and teachers who really are trying to level up. And you had some wonderful workshops last year that we wanted to kind of tie in with, but we were moving and we didn't get to hook up. But this year, I'm so thrilled. Um, you're going to be visiting us quite a bit because I think the topic that you have been um, uh, talking about on your socials and, of course, your your website and everything is so important right now. And, and just helping people find their artistic voice and to to make peace with their voice is something so important but so challenging. Um, but before we get started into your work and how you're helping people, I would love to let our listeners get a little bit of your story because I think it ties in with what you do so wonderfully. Yeah, it's true. What I do is because of my story. Mm. Um, I was a child of a choir director. So I grew up in um, the rehearsal room <laughs> and the auditorium. And um, we were also very active in our church, which had a really strong music program. So I was doing church music on a regular basis. Um, I was like the one kid that would show up in the adult choir <laughs> and sing on <laughs> this one little body in the choir, but I, love I loved it. sight reading and I'd go with my mom anyway and they'd let me sing. And, um, and I took piano lessons from a young age and um, it was just, you know, music was our life as a family and mm -hmm. I dove in. Um, I was, you know, a, a, a good kid that liked to follow rules and get gold stars. And that would come back later in my story. Of course. <laughs> in terms of my own artistic journey. But, you know, as a kiddo, it was important to me to make the grownups happy around mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, being, being good, doing good things. And so, you know, music was a part of that, partially because my mom, that was her life and what she was doing. 
Um, and even on dad's side, singing in church was a big, was a big thing. Lots mm-hmm. of Southern gospel music on mm. that side of my family. Lovely. Um, so, you know, when it came time to be thinking about college, I, I was, I would, I felt early on that I might want to be a teacher. A lot of the teachers who were my mom's friends that we were around were like, oh, you're such a natural teacher. You know, that's probably what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. So I was a pretty, you know, I was a strong candidate for your typical college music major. I was a strong pianist, strong sight reader. I did all state and solo and ensemble and in all the choirs and I sight read and blah, blah, blah. You know, so that's what I did. I went to college for music. Um, and did really well, um, classical voice major, um, bachelor's, master's, you know, got, got awards and good grades and all that good stuff and, and legitimately enjoyed myself. Um, I mean, it's not like I didn't love singing gorgeous choral music and didn't love singing beautiful art songs. And, uh, you know, I, I really loved all of that. So parallel to all of those things, Um, I was also fortunate to grow up in a household where my mom really loved a diverse array of music. And so did my dad and my stepmom. And so I grew up around tons of music. And while I was doing all of my, you know, be in the choir and all that good stuff, um, I was also listening to a lot of jazz. R&B was my favorite genre of, of, you know, stuff that was coming out on the radio and, you know, that's all stuff that I sing along to. And mom was actually, I didn't realize it, but somewhat kind of ahead of her time as a choir director in some ways, because she would, she did in the spring, a pops concert where the kids picked the music. So, you know, we, that was, that was part of what I grew up around. She would do the more traditional stuff. She did all state and then she did the pops concert. And in college, I was in a, um, I was in the kind of a show choir that was part of the um, the outreach department, actually. Um, we would go to schools and churches. It was an American Baptist affiliated school. We go to churches and perform um, different popular music styles. And our director was really fabulous at arranging that stuff. So it wasn't like I had an only classical um, traditional music upbringing. I did not. I also was not around people who like constantly poo-pooed on other musics. That was not my experience either. I had a lot of people loving lots of different kinds of music. Um, and, and even though that was true, there was also still this, I mean, looking back on it, it was interesting how you know, even though I loved all this other music, if I wanted to go to college for music, classical was the only thing I really could do, you know, that was it. If I was going to be a serious musician and loved music and really wanted to excel at it, that was, that was the path. It didn't matter that I really loved all this other stuff. So, um, um, and in college, even though all this other stuff was available, the, the primary mode of the department was Western classical music. So we had this extra thing on the side, but overall, that's mostly what was happening. Um, So I finish both of my degrees. 
um, bachelor's, master's in performance. Um, the second one had pedagogy as well. Um, cause I just knew teaching really did need to be a part of what I wanted to do. I, I do love teaching very, very much. So I get out of uh, college and there was, um, a new teacher I was working with outside of my master's program who introduced me to a book called the artist's way. And that was in like 2006. It was the first time I had been introduced to anything that had to do with creativity coaching. And I remember, I look back at my journals when I did that first time through that book. And it was interesting how, what a tangled mess my relationship with creativity was. Here I was a musician who had just finished two music degrees And I didn't really know what it meant to be creative. I didn't feel like a creative person. And I I felt like at some point there was going to be some sort of creating something, but I didn't know what that was going to be. Writing music was actually very scary and intimidating for me um, after coming through my music degrees. And um, I, I had some of my own stuff, like being afraid to, it's crazy that I thought this, but it it comes up. I was afraid it was selfish to be creative. And I'm no longer a religious person, but at the time I was, and I was actually afraid God might be upset with me if I did the very selfish thing of being really (laughs) self-expressive through creativity. And that was definitely, um, so that was some of the stuff that was going on after I had just finished two music degrees, which the general public who don't know what happens in music degrees would think that's a great start to becoming a creative person. But um, my story is not unique. This is the more I work with voice teachers. This is my story is pretty common that we finish and are a little confused about that stuff. So after, after, you know, I've read the artist's way I, you know, I was still always singing other music. I worked in churches where we did contemporary um, services and was singing contemporary music while I was getting degrees and, of course, continuing to have fun singing jazz and R&B and stuff on my own. So I was very interested in CCM pedagogy. That wasn't something we studied at the school that I went to. Um, and at that time, you know, mid-2000s, it was still relatively new, Um And I just started researching everything I could in the journals that I knew, in the resources that I knew, um, and had been taught were the places to look for reliable information, which were journals and stuff. So um, I started finding some information and was led to the CCM Institute and went to that for the first time in 2009 Mm. and was like, this is my stuff. Wow. This is going to be my stuff. <laughs> I know it. Like I knew, I walked in, it was like life-changing. I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. So I uh, went every year <laughs> after that because I wanted to keep learning and, you know, we'd go home and, and try stuff and come back and learn some more and straighten out any confusions I had and and they ended up putting me on faculty in 2016. So I've been on faculty for a few years now. Well, you weren't going away, so they might as well just give you a job. <laughs> you can't get rid of me. Yeah. 
<laughs> I loved it. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the, that was that was me starting to be around lots of voice teachers mm. every summer mm-hmm. who were obviously in some way drawn to learning more about CCM musics. And as I would observe either the teachers working with people or as I started working with people myself, it was really astounding how much pain there was for people around their voices, around their artistic identity, around feeling like they had been, um, yeah, uh, uh, limited in their ability to pursue what was what was really beautiful to, beautiful to them, or fear around their voices not being enough, or I mean, it was lots and lots and lots of pain, and I thought, well, <laughs> this. I know this is just one institute, you know, that has a couple hundred people maybe, you know, each summer coming. This isn't the whole of voice teacherdom, but this is one of the few opportunities you have to study other kinds of music in that academic sort of setting. This has to, you know, this is significant that this keeps coming up. So that would be part of why I wanted to work with teachers and, and why I was, you know, just observing these patterns that were happening with people. And, um, I also started to see, you know, musical theater was a a huge draw. That's why some of the teachers were there is because their department had added musical theater. They were thrust into teaching musical theater singing after having no experience in it whatsoever. And were desperate for some sort of information and help to be able to do that well. So they would come to the Institute to get that. So it, it tends, tended to be, still is to some degree, musical theater heavy. But that wasn't my world. <laughs> you know, popular music and jazz were really my world. And so I started to feel this need to create a niche and to explore the niche of popular musics and what it needs and what those clients need and what I need as someone in that world. Um, And so I started, well, I think it was the same year I was on the faculty. I created a website called singinginpopularmusics.com, which was a website by and for voice teachers who specialize in popular musics in particular. There have been teachers doing this for decades now um, who just weren't, either couldn't be part of academia or didn't want to be part of academia, (laughs) but who had tons of wisdom to share. So wanted to feature them, learn from them. Um, And so I've focused in on popular musics ever since. And my own journey was continuing to study popular musics for myself, because that was a huge part of what I wanted um, to be doing. So I'm doing this popular music stuff. I'm doing my own things. Classical music is still sort of in there a tiny bit. And I go to... this competition called the American Traditions Competition. I was a quarterfinalist in that competition. It was 2015, I think, first time I went. And it's this multi-genre competition, which I was excited about. Um, I was working with um, a teacher in New York for a while, and they were telling me that, you know, one of my big strengths was that I was, I was able to switch genres easily, convincingly, you know, that I could do multiple things well which was 
not helpful in terms of honing in on <laughs> my artistic, you know, thing, my joy, my thing I really wanted to do. But there it was. So I thought, I'll go to this competition. I can sing multiple genres of music. Like this is where my talent of doing multiple things would shine, right? Is in a multi-genre competition. Mm-hmm. And so I go to this competition and I mean, it's, it's great singers. It's 16 singers from across the country, fabulous singers doing lots of different things. And um, it was very informative in terms of me kind of figuring out what I loved as I did these different genres, what made me the happiest, what I loved the most, um, and how people responded to different ones. And then, you know, some of the judge feedback made it clear that the classical stuff was where I was the least connected. Wow. And, you know, that's what I had all this training in, but I, this, the natural connections were happening more easily in the other genres. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Okay. Um, they're like, yeah, you sort of like disappeared or something on that classical piece. I was like, holy cow. Okay. So, um, I, I did it again and I actually didn't do a classical piece in 2017, just did some other stuff. Um, And what I realized from both of those things, observing like how the judges responded, how I responded, like once I gave up this idea that the point of the competition was to be as good as possible at the different genres, like paying them, you know, doing them justice as much as could be done. What I realized is that the judges and the audiences, the judges and the audiences really preferred people who were super clear about themselves and their identity and what they did well. They didn't, they didn't seem to prefer people who, who like gave themselves over to the genre in a way to be a vessel for the genre. They were drawn to, we were all sort of drawn to these people who were like, no, here I am. And I'm going to like morph this genre in whatever way I need to, to really come forth as an artist most strongly in terms of who I am and what I do. That was a very educational experience for me to see that. It was uh, like the perfect experiment, really, wow. to like observe how this, th- because I think in as we've moved into CCM genre stuff, we can get so, um, I, I watch us as voice teachers be so fascinated by the idea of being really good at making the sounds well in different genres and Um, the more I've done this, the more I'm like, that's actually not that appealing to people who want to experience great art. Mm -hmm. You know, you being able to, to technically do a whole lot of different things. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up because while the as a teacher, I, I do love to geek out and, you know, know the science behind it. But I think our students are often coming from an emotional place where they're just trying to tell their story. And I, my experience is that's, that I have to be mindful. Some, some people are, want that information and they find it helpful, but others it's just not how you connect with them and it's not the information they're looking for in your studio. Yeah. And we really do them a disservice if at any point we communicate that that's not important 
or necessary. I mean, honestly, having a student who is emotionally connected is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, and we'll talk about this later. There's some of this coming up. But emotional connection is the core of what we do. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a kiddo coming in and that's really important to them and that's what they do, oh my goodness, please, please continue to foster that mm-hmm. and prioritize it and let them know how important that is. And that whatever technical things you're doing together are in service of that, not vice versa. I love that language, in service of that. That's helpful. That's helpful. So I... I, that happens there. Actually, this was a conversation I was having a little while ago with another teacher about, you know, our young teens, they've discovered this big, bad chest voice and they're really leaning into it. And how many teachers are like, well, we need to, you know, head voice, head voice, head voice. And it's, I've made that mistake with my teens where it's like, you know, there's a reason right now where they need to be in here. They're figuring things out. And, and I have a different student that is more engaged when they're trying, when they're making those sounds and me telling them that they're not appropriate sounds or they're damaging sounds or putting all the fear and worry into them. Like what, what a, what a bumpy road to take your students down. Yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it went as I, as I did my own stuff and also worked with a whole bunch of people, the relationship between emotions and the body mm. and, um, development, meaning like developmental stages and also some of those developmental stages being, thwarted in some way mm-hmm. and then how that all ties together into our voices and singing. Um, I mean, that was all a, ended up being a huge part of my journey mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trying to help, help my folks. So I, I ended up doing a lot of body work. I ended up um, doing a lot of therapy that, some was cognitive behavioral therapy, which some people call talk therapy. Later would be somatic experiencing therapy and different somatic psychotherapies that are very body focused and nervous system focused. And that was so helpful and informative in terms of how I centered the, the human in front of me and the emotions that they're going through and how that's showing up in their body and how I can help keep that stuff at the center while we're doing whatever technical things we're doing. And to think that somehow whatever technical goal I might have can usurp whatever's going on in that person's body and emotions (laughs) is, I mean, you know when it happens, like you see immediately when you have tried to assert your technical authority over a body that is needing to go through certain experiences, it just shuts the person down. Absolutely. And that can look different ways. For some people, that's a fawning response where they say, okay, I'm going to give myself over to your authority and do what you tell me to do because I believe that is what keeps me safe and secure in this situation. 
And so they might do what you say, but now you've lost the emotional connection because they believe that that's now a dangerous thing to show you. Mm. Or they start to get into more of a sort of fight situation, right? Or like a freezing situation where it's like, oh my gosh, I showed, I showed an emotion. I was myself, I was vulnerable. And now this is, they've told me this is not okay because I should be doing this different thing instead. Or they block and they get aggressive in different ways, like fight what you're saying. And being able to adjust to all of those things is is such a, and now I feel, necessary core part of how we teach voice. That we can't teach voice separate from any of that because that's all in the person's brain and nervous system. All of those things are taking way more precedence than whatever vocal thing we might be asking them to do at that moment. Yeah. And if we haven't gone through this process, if we haven't had someone hold space for us like this, how are we supposed to help our students? Right. If we're, if all our experiences were say, I, I'm just generalizing here, but say master apprentice, you know, where the language is right and wrong, good and bad. I mean, Shannon Coates talks about changing language and making sure that we're using different words to, to move away from right and wrong. But if we, if that wasn't our experience, then how are we, how are we going to be effective with our students? Yeah, it's, it, when you have the realization that that might be what you're doing, it's a difficult space and can be overwhelming at first to realize, <laughs> Ooh, okay. I've, I didn't realize that that was even my mindset. I didn't realize I was even doing that. Um, and you're probably passing on what was given to you. You're probably passing on things because of how you felt safe and how you felt secure and what you did for yourself to manage how you needed to manage in a voice lesson space. And so really the, the way that we move forward with any of that is to start with ourselves, start with our own stuff um, and whatever that looks like for you. Um, for me, that was somatic psychotherapy was incredibly, incre- I, I honestly think that there's going to be a huge intersection coming between that field and singing um, because the body and how it responds to being a human (laughs) and how we've been um, interacted with as humans is so intertwined with what our voices do. There's no way to to dissect them. Um, So for me, I I find that particularly helpful. There's lots of different um, uh, approaches inside of that. Somatic experiencing is one. Hakomi is one. There's a lot of different ones. But... um, that's one I recommend, but that can be lots of things, um, figuring out how, how you related to authority figures and parent figures in your life is very informative in terms of how you may be relating to the clients in your studio. Oh, that's a good, that's a good uh, thing for a teacher to ponder for sure. I wanted to ask you, your experience, although you went through the classical programs, you still had opportunities to sing other styles of music. What would you say to a teacher who is starting to realize that CCM and contemporary styles of singing are important and valuable, but it's something that they have never had 
the opportunity to ex- to explore. Where would you start with a teacher like that who just is so new to to popular musics? Where do they start? I, I would again start with the self. We teachers, I think, as a field, we many of us have one of those traits where we put others in front of ourselves, put our student needs in front of our own needs. I think, I think we do that a lot. Honestly, I think it's what leads a lot of us to this profession. It's wanting to be helpful, help others. But if this is a field that you want to start looking into, it will be most helpful for your students if you have some genuine love for some of this music. Mm. So Doing some listening and giving yourself permission to listen for, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to a song. And then if you don't like it, move on to the next one. I actually don't think it's all that helpful for teachers or anyone else to try to force themselves to like something they don't like. (laughs) Right. Um. And if you give yourself that permission, it's actually easier to give your students that permission down mm. the road too. Mm-hmm. And if you just say, okay, I'm going to listen until I find stuff I genuinely like, like that hits me on a gut level in a way that's hard to explain, mm-hmm. that I can't explain away with all the things I was taught to uh, use as analytical tools in college. Right. You know, just something about it hits me so hard. I don't even know how to express it. Find that music. Mm -hmm. And you keep listening till you find it. If you need some, you know, there's a bajillion Spotify playlists. Yeah. Find an artist you sort of like. Go down the related artists rabbit hole. There's a website called anydecentmusic.com that is sort of like the Rotten Tomatoes of music reviews. Oh, wow. You can see who's been highly rated that year, explore some different music. There's Mm -hmm. tons and tons of places you can listen to music. But start finding ways to legitimately love it. Love something. Um, And when you bring that into your studio that's going to make it so much easier for you to relate to your students and for them to relate to you. You do not have to like the same things. You probably won't like the same things. And that's one of the, the starting points that we'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, but that's where I would say to begin. And then once you find that stuff you love, go, I know this is COVID times, but go to concerts. At the very least, start watching concerts. Um, again, I think in academic systems, we studied music as a thing that was separate from the holistic experience. Right. We would dissect it in music theory classes. We would dissect it in analysis classes, history, blah, blah, blah. But music has always been an immersive experience in a space with people as part of a culture. So go start participating in that genre culture that you have found that you love as much as possible so that you can begin to reincorporate music into a full, whole, human, immersive experience. Because that's part of what your students are loving too. Mm -hmm. They're loving the whole experience. And it's also part of what they need to prepare for. 
is this whole experience, not just singing a song. So the more you're experiencing that as well, the more well-prepared you can be for the fact that they have to prepare for a whole experience. Um, And for me, in my own music journey, as I was exploring um, jazz and popular music and started doing it, you know, that was that was part of my, my thing that I had to learn was like, holy cow, I'm here. I'm working with guys who went to school for jazz. For instance, we have completely different cultures in terms of how we get on a stage, how we interact with each other, how we run a rehearsal, what the charts look like that I give them, um, how we talk about chords, what, what language they're using, how much more they use their ear than I do. Um, when they're processing music and when we're talking, I mean, it was just, it's an entirely different way to be a musician Mm. that I had to adjust to as a performer and become a part of in a way that, you know, I, I excelled at being a musician in this Western classical world. It was a totally, it's like, I'd never been a music. I mean, you know, not entirely, but man, you, it's humbling. It's like, okay, this is a totally different world. Yep. I got to make some adjustments here. And so when we go into those spaces and see all these other ways of doing things, it humbles us. And it also helps us have some of that information for our students when they, when they need it. But one of the biggest things I want, here are some of the things that I find are the most surprising for classical teachers when they start to want to step to popular musics. Number one, how big it is. It's okay. So we go into college and what big in college, because we have been diving in so deeply is classical music. It feels massive. And the truth is it is right. Classical music is a big world. You can specialize in French art song of the late 19th century. If you want to, right? right. I mean, but if we, zoom out, truly zoom out, classical music is 2% of what people listen to. Mm -hmm. Jazz is about 2%. Musical theater is about 2%. Everything else is popular music. So popular music, while in academic settings, might seem small, right? And that's sometimes how we think of it. It's like this thing off in the corner somewhere. This elective that's, that's offered, you know, in one of your terms, right? It's, it's a one, two, two course point elective. Right. In the world, it is basically all the music. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's all the music. And we're, we're the ones in the teeny tiny little corner, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is a beautiful corner. Yeah. (laughs) It's a lovely bubble. And I had a great time in it. And it's very small. Mm. So this is all of the music. There are so many genres, so many subgenres and sub, sub, sub genres. <laughs> if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, go to the website everynoise.com oh, and just yes. look at all of the different genres. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. It is. That's a great site. And every genre has its own culture. Yeah. Its own way of talking, dressing, performing, singing, doing social media, food. And and even if you're truly a performer in the world of popular musics, you will only really be comfortable and fluent in a few of these genres. 
And there are a ton of them. Wow. So because there is so much out there, you will be much more of a facilitator in these genres than a Mm -hmm. teacher. Ah, I love that. And this isn't new to me. This is something that the popular music education world talks about all the time. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot to teach us and have been doing this for a long time. And for some reason, our communities have been very disconnected. Mm -hmm. But popular Mm -hmm. music education world talks about this a lot. Facilitation as opposed to teaching. Because popular music is also about innovation And so there's no way you could pass down information. It hasn't happened yet. Right, right. You're just trying to facilitate what this next generation of musicians is going to do. And to facilitate their learning about the genres that fascinate them the most and who they want to be. So the beauty is you can give up on this idea that you have to have all the information because it's impossible. I love that. What, you know, and that's a hard permission for, for teachers sometimes. We, we feel, for whatever reason, we're supposed to have all the answers. We're supposed to be the expert, no matter what our students bring us. And we, it causes so much pain and suffering and the whole imposter syndrome or, you know, you get into becoming defensive and, and then, you know, you draw the lines in the sand about what is good and what is bad just so that you don't have to deal with what you don't know about. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you and to continue this conversation. And we're going to hone in on some specific topics throughout the season. Um, Jessica, where can uh, my listeners find and follow you um, and also learn about, you have wonderful workshops. You, you, there's a lot of different topics you talk about, talk about. Where can people find and follow you? Sure. So the website I mentioned earlier, singinginpopularmusics.com, is a place you can find a lot of resources about being a voice teacher who wants to teach in these genres. Mm. So I designed it specifically for voice teachers. I have lots of entries on there, but I've invited people who I believe are are, um, legends and also innovators in this field to come write about it and share information. It is a treasure trove. And there's also a resource database on there that I've put together with lots of books and videos and things that that exist, articles, studies um, that you can look at to continue to dive into this if you want to. So that's that website. Um, My other website is truecolorsvoiceandartist.com. That is the business uh, that I run that is voice training plus creativity coaching. I love it. And that's where I work with people from different walks that can be professional artists that can be developing artists who are kind of figuring themselves out. Mm -hmm. And also I do voice teacher and vocal coach training around these ideas. So, um, there are different offerings for those different communities. Um, I also offer a three week experience that is specific to people who have been through classical training Mm -hmm. Um, because I find some of the healing that needs to happen in order for people to step into fuller artistry. There are some unique things that have happened to people who've been through the classical pipeline. 
and coming together in a group with people who have those common experiences and, and speaking specifically to those and helping people. We work through questions and um, explore some different stuff and uh, do, do a project. Everybody does a project together, gets feedback, works together on it. You know, it's, it's all discovery stuff. It's honestly not that different from what I do with the developing artists and the professional artists, but something about being in a space with other classical people, there's something that needs to happen that's kind of specific to that group. And so I've created a, a, a separate space for that, um, for the folks who've been through those experiences. It's called Out of the Classical Closet. Um, the teacher <laughs> development circle is for people who are working with singers and then um, want do lots of one-on-one coaching. It's one of my favorite things, but there's a couple other workshops around that too. Jessica, I'm so, so excited that we can continue this conversation. You're going to be back. You're one of our experts this season on the podcast, and we're going to dive a little deeper into specifics uh, of, for, for teachers and for students. Um, I'm going to put your information on the web page and as well as the show notes so people can find and follow you. And I look forward to talking to you soon. I can't wait. Thank you so much. My good friend and colleague, Dana Lentini, returns to the podcast, and we are having a fabulous conversation about all of the opportunities in starting small group classes within your teaching studio. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast. Dana Lentini, how are you? I'm great. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Oh. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always I always love talking to you. And we we chat from time to time. You know, we're both crazy busy with our families. So I don't I think we've mentioned this in other podcasts, but you are also married to a guitar player, composer, husband, and you have a son named Noah. Yeah, I do. We have a lot in common. Isn't that bizarre? <laughs> and our yeah. our dear friend and colleague, Ginevra Williams, is also married to a guitar player composer. Now, I don't think she's named any of her children Noah, but uh, there. She There's... has one that plays the cello and I have one that plays the violin. Oh so. my goodness. Yeah. And I have I one that plays baseball. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't have any ball-playing children, but I do have a ball-playing puppy. Oh, okay. There. We're good. We're even. Um, I, I, loved, I loved our chats, and we certainly share a lot of uh, commonalities in our pedagogy and, of course, our advocation for um, working with the child singer. And if... If our listeners do not know, you have a wonderful book that was released, uh, I think it was 2019, was it? 20, 2020, in the middle of the pandemic, oh, July right. 2020. Yes. Uh, Teaching the Child Singer, which is such an asset to anybody in the, in the teaching studio and wonderful work there. Um, I reference it all the time. And, I, and when I do my teacher trainings, I always bring your really good juicy, juicy points into my, into my training. Um, but today, what I'd love to talk to you about is small group classes for young singers, because that's something you've been helping other teachers with. And 
that's something that people are always asking in our forum, Voice Teachers for Young Singers. So I thought it might be helpful to just kind of talk about your experiences and, and, and your recommendations for anybody that's interested in starting that kind of program within their teaching studios. Yeah, I love group classes. And um, that's actually how I started working with children. And oh. that, so it's near and dear to my heart because before I took them as private students, it was working with them in the group. In fact, I started really working with them, well, first with a children's choir at my church. And, you know, we've moved several times. And so I always have to kind of reinvent myself. And so when we moved after working with the children's choir, um, I got a phone call from my kids were in a parochial school. And I got a phone call about two weeks before the school season started. It was like end of August from the principal saying, our music teacher just left. Could you teach our music? <laughs> you know, I was... I was taken aback and I'm like, what? And then, you know, then when you kind of like let the dust settle and you think about it for a minute and you have that can-do attitude, I said yes. And for a variety of reasons. And I was teaching um, adjunct at the local university and I was already teaching a vocal pedagogy class to undergrads and I was teaching an adult voice class. So when I went into the classroom, you know, I have a degree in voice, so I, I didn't even have any training in the classroom or how to do that except this children's choir. And so, you know, it was from there that I, when I moved again, that I realized that, you know, all this talk of, well, children can't take singing lessons. I was thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, I was just with children. I, you know, children are singing all the time. So, you know, so maybe since they can't take voice lessons, maybe I can create a class for them that's after school, that's not a general music class like I was teaching, but a class just for singing and kind of a hybrid from what I was teaching in my pedagogy classes, what I was teaching in this adult group class. And so, voila, was created this big group class. And so mine was not a small group. Mine was, my first group class was a big, large group class. I think I had 15 to 18 students. And, you know, coming from the classroom, I had 20 to 24 students in a classroom. So that was uh, something that was, you know, it wasn't a big deal to me to have 15 singers in a class. And in a choir, that's how many you're going to have in a choir. But the, the group classes is, is different because it's it's based around the individual. So, right, a choir is, you know, getting them to blend and getting them to have that unified sound, whereas the group class is about finding that individuality, that uniqueness, but learning how to sing in that same way, but finding their own, finding their own voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I like it. I, I like to keep my, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing on the inside because the thought of 15 students, although you say that that was easy for you. Um, I soon learned when starting my group classes that I think seven was my breaking point where I called in help with my assistant, Heidi, who's also a classroom teacher. Um, but 
I'm so used to teaching private, you know, one-on-one and, you know, seeing that singer and that singer is my focus. So I really struggled with a, with a, a bigger number of kids. Now I, I, I would like to think that my classroom management skills have improved since then. <laughs> and of course we're online now, so they had to change again. But, um, I, I like what you said about being about the individual. We still want to nurture the voices and, and give individual attention within our groups. Yes, for sure. And and that is something that, you know, can be cultivated um, with trial and error. It depends. I mean, every group is different, mm. as you know, with small groups or large groups. Every dynamic, you know, class has a different feel. So, you know, you just have to, you know, trial by error. Um, but, you know, the group classes for me, are actually really my favorite. I really love doing the group classes. And um, it was from there when I was doing the group classes that I realized, oh, well, this little girl over here, she really needs, you know, Sarah really would benefit from working one-on-one with me. And so then that's when I, you know, kind of started then taking them as private students because I realized you know, first of all, I, you know, I wasn't hurting them. I wasn't damaging their voices because I was teaching them with child-centered pedagogy, right? which is not something that I was ever taught how to do. But I, you know, I just use my own, you know, creative thinking and again, combining what I was doing over in the adjunct positions that I was doing. And, um, yeah, so created that. And it was also the curriculum that I had to build. You know, as a, as a classroom teacher, I was taking, you know, the professional development classes on the weekends in Kodai. And, and um, I've always been a big fan of John Fireobin's um, programs and his um, methodology. And that was something actually before I was even in the classroom as a parent I was aware of and using with my own children. So I incorporated all of that kind of stuff into into that curriculum because I was building a curriculum for the elementary school. My principal wanted to see my lesson plans. And um, so I, I kind of learned on the job there. And that's what I applied to all of my all of my singing classes. Mm. Now, I I hope you don't mind. I'm, I want to do a little bit of a side note go off topic a little bit, because this is a question I think that a lot of teachers have. It comes up a lot, uh, in my teacher training. Um, the, 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 the myths and the biases about working with children. Can we, can we just take a moment to discuss why, why are we, I mean, the conversation is very different today than it was, and it is much more inclusive, but where did, where did those, you shouldn't work with children, feelings, thoughts, biases come from? Can you help people understand what, why that happened and why we know better now? Yeah. Um, it's a great question, and, and I do, you know, kind of outline that a little bit in my book. I really attribute it to the master-apprentice model that we hear about, and um, that master-apprentice model, you know, for me, 
I went to college. I got my degree in voice. I started taking voice lessons when I was 13. <laughs> and even then, I remember my mom, you know, saying, well, you can't take voice lessons until you're older, because I had been begging for a long time. And so even my mom knew that. And my mom wasn't, she was just a mom <laughs> in the 70s, right? She didn't have, uh, a, you know, she wasn't a musician or an artist, but there was just even, you know, they just, parents seem to know that, you know, for whatever reason. But I think when we go, you know, we take voice lessons and then we go to college and we learn pedagogy in our pedagogy classes, we're learning everything geared towards the adult voice when we see when we talk about acoustics and when they're talking about you know the structure of the larynx and you're learning all of that in my pedagogy classes I went to USC and um that was all geared towards the you know post-puberty matured voice and the repertoire all of the classes that I took in vocal literature they were all you know Schubert Schumann how to put together the voice recital I mean that was my my vocal lit classes was how to put together the western classical you know art song recital and so then if you're going to take an eight-year-old how can you transcribe that into pedagogy for them so that was nothing that I was taught I do in my teacher training too I do come across teachers that they actually took voice lessons themselves when they were younger and there there was some of that pedagogy out there um, or there were teachers anyway but I think what happened then is the children that were taking voice lessons by and large were the semi-professional or professional track singers, right? It's not unheard of that, you know, that child that's auditioning for Broadway, you know, that's going to be an Annie is taking voice lessons on the side. So people always assume that anybody taking voice lessons, it's that, you know, you always hear that, oh, we don't want to give them voice lessons because they just want to be Annie. I hear that a lot, you know, because there are those singers that they do need a voice teacher, and so those kids that want to be Annie, they do need voice lessons, but it's not all kids. And so I feel like we've, we've, we for so long have pushed aside these young singers that could all be taking these singing lessons because we, nobody ever really knew how. It would be like if piano teachers only were teaching piano lessons to kids that wanted to play at Carnegie Hall. But we all know that kids, by and large, people want their children to take piano lessons because they want to learn proficiency of the keyboard and and proficiency in music theory and the structure of music. And there's all the studies that show how brilliant music education is to creating the whole child. And somehow that became the go-to instrument for anybody wanting to learn music proficiency. And I think it just is something that, you know, was created when in the 19th century, well, late 19th century, but really more in the 20th century, when um, education and teaching of singing became something so prominent mm. at the university level, post-secondary, sure. right. right? And when it became that, it became this kind of elite 
elite, elite singer. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really where it came from. And then the Kodai and all of that stuff was really like a classroom mm-hmm. um, thing. It wasn't something that people did um, as private lessons. It was something developed for the classroom. There really so, is a, I just want to interject, there really is a disconnect. Uh, when I did my Kodai training, um, We had some really good conversations with our instructors and and, uh, one of the instructors, you know, was like, there's such a disconnect. And she even she even said, you know, sometimes a lack of respect uh, in university programs between the performance majors and the music education majors. And there's, you know, and and the the opinions of of what is important to one stream and what is important to another is really challenging and um uh, i think that i think it's interesting i think uh you know i mean mean, most people in a performance i went to school for uh, my my program was a performance program so i didn't have any pedagogy and learned all of it in the trenches uh, you know but um it's it's interesting that there seems to be a disconnect from the music education programs, which are incredible. I mean, what what a teacher has to know now, your teaching toolbox has to be massive now to be to be a, a, a inclusive, to be a, a successful teacher. It, it really has to be massive, and we can learn a lot from our music education courses out there. Yes, I so agree. And it would be wonderful to see that hybrid. In fact, when I went and did my master's in pedagogy, I I was able to, with my professors, create my own scenario because pedagogy for voice is really more science-based than it is um, teaching and un understanding how to teach um, with that kind of, you know, whether it's classroom skills or whatever. Um, So yeah, they are, you know, when I was at University of Southern California, I said USC earlier, but there's other USC's, but um, there was, yeah, very clearly defined. There was the music ed majors and there was the vocal performance track. And we hardly ever had classes together. I mean, they weren't taking the classes in you know vocal literature they weren't taking the vocal pedagogy classes that we were taking but of course they were taking pedagogy but you know so it's very interesting yeah that there needs to be some hybrid i think um where there is and some programs do let you create that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well, thank you for letting me go off topic a little bit there. I think that's I think that's a question that a lot of teachers have is, you know, and I I, I can't remember who said this, but I, I it really made me think it was, you know, when your pedagogy includes discriminating against an age group or an ability, it's it's time to check in on your on your pedagogy. I, I can't remember who said that, so if they're listening, I apologize for not attributing. But I thought that was a really good, a really good reminder. Like if we, if we feel that we need to di- like not include a certain age group, I'm not saying that you have to work with them, but if right. you're feelings no, you're towards yeah. working with a certain group are marred, perhaps some personal reflection. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, but the, the courses for teaching that should be inclusive. Mm-hmm. But just like, you know, for any of us, finding our ideal client or finding who we work best with, you know, maybe somebody works best with um, female sopranos that are, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Maybe somebody works best working with, you know, young male voices or or bass baritones or or what have you. I mean, we all have our specialties, but when we when we're learning, we should be open to all of the mm-hmm. all of the varieties that are out there. Absolutely. Now, getting us back on track, <laughs> we were talking about the small group classes or or medium or large group classes. Um what I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of great opportunities for teachers that are considering this type of offering, um, and I, I know for me it was uh, a wonderful opportunity to um, allow families and children who were maybe new to singing, maybe they had an interest in it, but they weren't quite sure that they wanted to make that commitment to like a private lesson. And I wasn't sure whether or not they were going to, you know, be a good fit in my private studio. So I certainly love the small group class as a way to, as an introductory uh, opportunity, but also as a way to kind of funnel students that want to move into private lessons. But there's a ton of other reasons why we can have fun with students in a small group. So what what have been some of your experiences? Well, there's benefits for both the students and the teacher. I mean, some of the benefits for the teacher um, are, like you were saying, maybe you can help funnel them into um, the private lessons. You know, when you're teaching a group class, you might identify a student that has extraordinary aptitude and you think, well, I really want to work with this singer. I have so many great things that I could do with this singer. Or in a group class, you might realize that there's that singer that really needs more, they love singing so much, but um, they really can't match pitch very well, or they have a really hard time understanding registration, and they want to sing everything in their chest voice, and they have a hard time really um, understanding and cultivating that head voice sound and getting a lighter um, sound. And so maybe those singers that need a little special help are also, because they're so passionate about singing, that bringing them into those private student, as a private student, is is so special. In fact, I feel like I'm almost a specialist of singers that need special help. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yes. there are those voice teachers out there, they're coaches, they're working with those really elite singers that are doing, you know, I see them advertising all the wonderful accomplishments that their students are they're starring in this show or they at you know, you know, on American Idol or whatever. My students are by and large those singers that just love singing and love singing in the shower and they just want to find their own voice and they just love um, telling stories with their singing voice. And so that for me in the group class is always wonderful to find, you know, those students that I know would be really ideal clients for me. So like you were saying, like funneling, I love that. I love that aspect. But you know, those other things that are beneficial for the teacher you know, for me, when after I had had my background in teaching 
at the school and I had moved again and you know starting your studio over again and you you know there's always the there's always the teacher in town that everybody goes to so when you come in even if you've got a book published people still <laughs> look at you like who are you we don't know you um <laughs> and you know this teacher's been teaching here for 20 years and she's the or he or she is the person that everybody goes to because they have that reputation but when i moved to rural ohio and I decided to start this group class immediately from all of the kids that enrolled in the class, from the visibility that I had in the community. I was advertising it in the school district. Immediately, I became the teacher that everybody knew was teaching singing lessons. And so that really helped my visibility. And, you know, let's face it, uh, it helps the income too, because you know, I know we can raise our prices. I know we can. But let's face it, when somebody has a six-year-old who comes to you and wants voice lessons for 45 minutes, there is a limit that they're going to pay. They're not going to pay me $150 an hour. To Well, maybe if they're really wealthy, but the average family can't afford that, you know. But if I want to make $150 an hour and I want to teach a group class, I can... I can access that a lot better and easier by combining singers. So in that way, you know, increasing your income, increasing your visibility, that those group classes, I think, are, are really a beneficial thing for the voice teacher. I, uh, I want to thank you for, for saying that. I think that uh, um, group classes are a wonderful way to increase your income without adding more hours into your day. And if there's one thing that I think everybody is looking for is that balance. You know, we, we, we don't want, I certainly don't want, I look back on my early days of teaching and wonder how I even survived. I taught so many, and I wasn't doing group classes back then. It was one-on-one and you can only add hours into your day if you, if you wanted to, you know, increase your income. And I love, I love that people have that opportunity now to, to, to increase their income, but not work or bring in more students. And, and I just think that's so helpful. Yeah. Well, I think the other really benefit for the singer as well is one of the things that they like about choir, one of the things that kids like about baseball, is that community. Especially, and this is why I offered my course on teaching group classes, as you know, we're kind of getting back to some in-person things, because we've been so isolated and away from others. This is such a wonderful opportunity to be with our like-minded peers And so for the kids, that camaraderie that they have, I just love watching them. I love, I have, I do a little mini master class, if you will, at the end of my, at each, at each class. So, you know, I have a very structured way I teach and I, you know, talk about that five-step system that I do. And so once they are learning their repertoire, we always spend the last 15 minutes of a group class saying, who would like to sing? And, oh, 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 I want to sing. And so all of my singers all know that they get to give feedback. And I know some people think that could be scary because kids are going to say hurtful and mean things. But this is a wonderful opportunity to breed 
positivity and empowerment in these kids. And so I have rarely had an opportunity where someone left and their feelings were hurt because somebody said, I always leave going, I can't believe that 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 person listening there said that to that one student because maybe a student got up there and couldn't sing any note in tune. And and you watch these little eight, nine, 10-year-olds, you know, they can recognize that, but they said something like, you are so confident. I loved the way you articulated all of your consonants. You know, they'll just come out with the sweetest little thing and it just melts your heart that they are working as a group to empower each other and to give each other their own voices. Or maybe there's that child that um, isn't ready to sing by themselves yet. And so it's, you ask, oh, who wants to sing, you know? And so somebody raises their hand, oh, 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 I want to sing. And and maybe I look over there and I see, you know, Betsy, who hasn't sung yet for anybody. And I'll say, oh, you know, Betsy, do you want to sing with her? And so then you can kind of combine them, have them sing together. And they're working together as a team. And again, we're not working on blending. We're working on individuality. And for that I just find so beautiful when you've got them in a group together that they can learn from one another. And you know, here's the little secret. You know, in our Facebook group, when we get into lots of discussions about repertoire and how we can't get our kids to see beyond the pop songs that they listen to or whatever, and they listen to those songs and they want to sing those songs because that's what mom and dad are listening to. That's what that's what they hear. They want to sing the princess, Disney princess songs because they're watching the movies over and over and over again. That's what they want to sing. But when you're doing a group class and they're all singing on top of spaghetti or whatever group songs that you're singing, they want to sing those because now their peers are singing them too. And all of a sudden, it doesn't become a problem because they love the songs. And they might have a favorite in the group of, you know, like I always have a group of songs. Like if it's if it's a class for 10 weeks, I'm probably going to pick about eight songs that they're going to learn in those 10 weeks. So out of those eight songs, they always have one that's their favorite, maybe one that's their least favorite, but they're finding that their favorite resonates with them. And I've picked songs, as you know, um, because you have so many wonderful songs yourself. They're about songs that are age appropriate, <laughs> right? They're not songs like, um, oh, you know, I think I was, maybe it was on your podcast or I was listening to you talk about the Little Mermaid song. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, that's like that's a marathon. It's eight. Pages. It is a marathon. And those little kids can't memorize all those words. So when we give them songs that are short and accessible for their voices, now they feel empowered. They want to sing it because they know they sound good when they sing it. And and so the group class is so wonderful for that, for that peer to peer influence. So now we can inspire them to sing age appropriate songs and not wanna sing That Girl Is On Fire, which is a lovely, great song and it's wonderful and empowering, but not all seven-year-olds can sing that song very well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I love that you brought up like the the repertoire and, and it is always, a, it's a forever challenge. And I certainly 
had noticed that, uh, yes, when you have them singing in a group, you have a little more, uh, a little more, uh, willingness to sing those songs. I certainly have discovered that for sure. Um, We are going to follow this interview up with more details about, you know, structuring and and guidelines for structuring small group classes. But I wanted to, uh, I wanted to just kind of just talk a little bit about the whys and and the amazing opportunities that we have when we're starting our small group classes. Uh, Where can people find and follow you and where can they get your book? Oh, yes. Um, Well, I have my website, borntosingkids.com, and I have a section on there for teachers. Mm -hmm. And there's links on there for my book. You can find my book on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Um, Teaching the Child Singer, Pediatric Pedagogy for Ages 5 to 13. Um, It's published with Hal Leonard. Um, For those people that are not in the U.S. or Canada or other countries that can easily accessibly find it they can also get the ebook version yes yeah awesome i will put links in the show notes to all of your wonderful information and i hope people that will reach out if they want more information but we will have you back and we'll be talking about uh the uh more details about the wonderful opportunities of uh, small group voice classes for uh for for teachers great thank you A very special thank you to Jessica and Dana for joining me today on the Full Voice Podcast. If you would like to find and follow them, please visit the show notes and you can get all of that fantastic information. As always, Full Voice Music is dedicated in creating fun and educational music resources for young singers. If you have not visited our website, please do so. And don't forget to check the free resources page. You can download warm-ups, songs, games, all sorts of fun activities right away and try them today in your teaching studio. And if you are on Instagram, don't be afraid to find and follow me at The Full Voice. I share lots of fun as well as some teaching strategies. I often go live and share some fun um, activities and new resources. And I would love to connect with you on Instagram. My friend, my colleague, as always, my heartfelt wish for you is that every time a student leaves your studio or signs off of your Zoom room, they do so with the biggest smile. Happy singing. Made by Canoe Music Productions.